What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Patrick Campbell. Patrick, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Pumped to uh, to chat. I know, like I said before, we had to reschedule this a couple of times. So excited to to hopefully share share something that that's useful to folks. Excited to have you on here. You are the founder of ProfitWell, which is a pretty amazing business. And you started it back in 2012, and it has grown super rapidly since then. I want to walk through just a couple of numbers to give listeners sort of an idea of what you're working on. Uh, what's your revenue like today at ProfitWell? Yeah, so we are um, past the uh, 10 million mark, essentially. We were, it's a little bit tough just because we're, you know, going so quickly. So it's one of those things where giving you the pinpoint as of today, you know, we typically don't try to do that, but we're, we're past that 10 million mark and, and heading, heading to the next 20 or 25 as we're trying to go. You are past 10 million in revenue. You are a first time founder, correct? Yep. First time founder. Haven't, uh, unless you count like selling animal crackers when I was a kid in school, but that was, that was a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. We won't count that. You are a first time founder. You're also bootstrapped, I believe. So you haven't raised any money from friends and family, angel investors, venture capitalists, or anything like that. Uh, no, we, well, I started the company by, uh, my mid twenties, I cashed in my 401k, which wasn't very large because I was pretty young, but yeah, completely bootstrapped and, um, you know, haven't raised any outside capital, but there's a, there's been a lot of other costs, um, besides, <laughs> besides not raising money. So yeah, we'll get into those, but overall it's a pretty rosy picture. I mean, you are a first time bootstrap founder who's built an eight figure business. I'm pretty excited to ask you a ton of questions about how you did this because, I just so happen to know a lot of first-time founders with no investor connections who would love to build a $10 million a year business. Why don't you explain for us what ProfitWell is and why people use it? Yeah, definitely. We we basically focus on what we like to call the hard parts of subscription growth. So we have a suite of software products that basically help subscription companies with, with a few different things in their business. Um, one is a free subscription uh, financial metrics product. So it plugs right into Stripe or whatever billing system you're using and gives you access to your cohorts, your segmentation, benchmarks, a bunch of other things. So you can do all of your reporting and, and hopefully find um, different problems or root out different problems in your business. And we give that away for free. And so the way that we make money is we essentially use that to kind of show you different problems and opportunities. And then some of those opportunities or problems we, we solve or we have products that help. Uh, so we have a retained product that takes care of involuntary churn. Um, we're heading into a world where we're going to start going after voluntary churn as well. And then we also have a product called Price Intelligently, which was our first product that essentially did um, or, or works. It's software that basically helps figure out how you should be optimizing your subscription pricing. So you help founders with the hard part of growing their subscription revenue. Are there any easy parts to growing subscription revenue? <laughs> I think there's paths of least resistance, right? I mean, you have... Like just read ten, you know, growth articles, and there's a bunch of you know paths there. You know, hey, do this, add this, you know, add, you know, do this type of blog post, these types of things. And so, 
yeah, long story short, you know, it's 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 one of those things where there there are easier parts than others. I think when we say hard parts, it's more of just looking at the things that no one's you know spending enough time on that they should be spending time on, and and trying to attack those problems versus being you know one of a thousand products that are trying to solve you know the problems that everyone's thinking about every single day. I kind of want to talk about how founders can prevent some of these problems. You've got a ton of data on this. You've also spent a lot of time educating your customers and educating yourself about how to sort of solve these problems. How much do you think getting around these problems of churn, getting around these problems of knowing how much to charge, et cetera, how much of that do you think comes in the early days of just picking the right market, picking the right business to work on? And how much Mm. is a result of sort of the subsequent decisions you make, the tactical and strategic decisions you make after you've already decided what your business will be? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think it's, you know, when you think of something like churn and like, especially churn, and I would argue, well, no, I think definitely with churn here, you, there's a core part of your retention that no amount of tactics, tools, software, et cetera, are going to solve. Uh, and same thing with monetization. There's there's no amount of like tactics, ending your prices in nines, these types of things that is going to solve you do not have the right market, you're not selling the right type of product, or you're not selling to the right type of person. And so I think in the early days, the things that you do for retention and monetization, and even you know into the long term, there are still these things that you need to do that are kind of the fundamentals are fundamentally at the core of solving those problems, you know, picking the right market, picking the right, you know, product, um, building the right features, positioning the right value proposition. And a lot of that, you know, that's what we help with on the price intelligently side, both in the early days and, and kind of the extended days. But as you continue to scale and you start kind of scaling a business, there's a bunch of tactical things that you can do to take care of the mechanical parts of churn, as well as the mechanical parts of pricing. And I think what ends up happening is we just kind of assume for both retention and monetization that we know that they're important, but things are just kind of scaling and things are just kind of going. And therefore, we don't have to focus on any of the tactics or things aren't working out. And so we can just kind of, you know, just focus on what we think is the path of least resistance, which is acquiring customers, acquiring users. And so it's just kind of breaking down each of these things and kind of the sum of their parts and and kind of working in a way to understand what you can control and, and what you probably can't control or need to dive more strategically in on. Yeah, I think if you talk to you know any founder off the street, mostly what people are talking about, mostly what they're worried about is acquiring new users, growing, getting their name out there. I don't hear very many people having conversations about some of these deeper topics like churn. How much mm-hmm. do you have to educate founders and let them know, hey, this is something you should be paying attention to. There's actually a lot of revenue you can unlock by fixing churn and how much of it is people sort of coming to you once they've already experienced these problems and they know how important they are. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And this is this is a, a particular problem in our business because we, you know, if you go ask 10 people, you know, how would you solve like pricing or monetization inside their business? Or you go ask 10 people and, you know, how would you solve, you know, delinquent churn, which is kind of where we started with our retained product, or even, you know, certain aspects of, of voluntary or active churn. And most of the time, they, they just don't know because they never really have thought about these things or they know that they're important, but they're, you know, such big, scary problems like pricing that these smart, capable people 
you know, they don't just realize, oh, you should just apply the same type of thinking that you do to building your product, building your company, managing your team, et cetera, in order to kind of solve those problems. So the short answer is we have to do a lot of education. I kind of attribute it or I, I kind of compare it, excuse me, to something like pet insurance, right? So pet insurance wasn't really a market, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But all of a sudden, you know, you would get educated on, well, you should get pet insurance because if you don't and something goes wrong, you know, Fido, who's now a pure member of the family where maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was, you know, the dog outside could get hurt. And so similarly, our products, it's like if you realize the actual impact that'll happen, it makes sense to kind of take care of things. And, and that's why like the people who are like really hot to trot or really come in and are like, oh, we need this product. Those are typically the ones that are in a, a little bit of a precarious position where they're, you know, investors or their boards or their advisors are like, hey, you really, really need to fix this. Or they're in a situation where they, you know, finally kind of came to the light and other things aren't working. And so they want to kind of, you know, solve their problems through these, these kind of growth levers and channels. So a lot of people listening are super early stage founders. They might have no idea what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> they might not know what term means. <laughs> sorry, they might sorry, not know sorry. Yeah, why yeah, yeah. this is important. No, no, it's my fault. So why don't you give us kind of the the pitch? You know, I'm a I'm aspiring founder. I think I'm going to start a company. Uh, why would I care about any of this stuff? Why does it matter? Yeah. So so here's the thing: when you're when you're in the early stages, you in any part of your business, you only have so much time, right? And when you're in the early stages, you need to be on the quickest path to learning. And so what ends up happening is you eventually will figure something out through either brute force, uh, clever thinking, some good research, these types of things. But as you then start to build your business, after you figured out kind of the product, you get some really early customers, maybe they're friends and family, you're going to start to want to grow your business, right? And you hopefully have figured out, you know, some traction or, you know, hopefully figured out some, you know, ways to acquire more customers. But what ends up happening is you have to realize that after you get, you know, a little bit over like that freshness or that, oh my God, we got our first customer stage, you have three growth levers. You have acquisition, you have monetization, and you have retention. And in a subscription business in particular, and even if it's not a subscription business, you know, what ends up happening is those retention growth levers and those monetization growth levers, those are the ones that essentially are driving a vast majority of your growth because the whole point of a business is to have repeat customers or have that subscription kind of going forward. And so ultimately what ends up happening is, is that you need to focus some time on those parts of your business, not just on, hey, let's write another blog post, let's get another couple of ads written, let's do X, Y, Z. Instead, making sure that you're kind of building a sustainable business, not one where you're putting a dollar in and getting a customer and then all of a sudden that customer leaves you almost immediately because they didn't feel like they should have that product or they're not necessarily seeing the value that you're charging them for. Um, and ultimately, you want to make sure you're aligned to that customer and it takes more than just kind of making that customer come through the door. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. There's these multiple levers that you can use to sort of progress in your business. And the worst thing you can do is be completely blind to like two out of these three levers to be kind of stuck and be like, ah, oh, my business isn't growing and I keep pushing on this one particular lever and it's not going. I guess I've got to start something new. And it's like, well, no, you never really looked at your pricing. You never really looked at these other different channels that you can use to grow. One of the things that's really interesting to me about your story is that what you're working on is you're helping companies solve these really difficult problems. And these are problems that are hard for people to solve on their own when they're extremely incentivized to solve these problems because they'll make a lot of money, they'll be successful founders, et cetera. 
I can only imagine how hard it is for you to come in and try to solve this as a third party. So I want to mm-hmm. walk through your story and how you grew profit well and how you sort of iterated to the point where you are today because it's a kind of a windy path that you took. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a maybe a nice way to put it or a charitable <laughs> way to put it, I suppose. Well, let's go back to before your your profit well days. You were at a startup, I believe, before profit well, and you also you also had a stint at Google, and before that, you worked for the NSA, which means you're probably the closest I will ever come to having a spy on the podcast. Uh, what was it like <laughs> working for the NSA? Is there anything useful you learned there that you could share with us? No, no, no. I'm going to have to kill you after this podcast. Though. No, <laughs> no. So it was, um, it was super fascinating. So I, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a farm boy from Wisconsin originally, you know, and I fell in love with numbers and, you know, kind of solving problems and finding solutions. And so I studied economics and, you know, I, I, I wanted, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but as I was studying economics, I was like, oh, there's like other things I can do. And maybe I can go try and save the world by being in, you know, Washington DC and just love that city. And, ended up, you know, kind of finding through an internship, this other program in the intelligence community. And, you know, it's, it's like everyone with the intelligence community. If you've ever watched a movie about, you know, the military or spies or read a one Tom Clancy novel or something like there's always a little bit of romance to it. And so I was like, Oh, like, this will be interesting. I, I hear applying is, you know, a terrible process and it's really hard to get into. So, you know, let me, let me try it. And so, went through, you know, a bunch of different tests, you know, including like a full scale polygraph, you know, where you, I don't think I'm actually even allowed to tell you like the whole process there, but basically like, you know, I got everything checked. They interviewed my, you know, my neighbors from my childhood, you know, most of my close and personal contacts and all that kind of fun stuff. There's a lot of things you have to do to get a a top secret clearance essentially. And so it was probably one of the most fulfilling jobs I will ever have in my life. And I would argue, and this is a really hard thing, you know, to argue that it, it's almost more fulfilling than than my job here building a company. And the reason is, is because even if you're, you know, essentially an entry-level Intel analyst like I was, basically you are, you're doing things that have like an impact on, you know, helping you know, the world and helping, you know, specifically the United States. And so there's this like level of mission and this level of patriotism that, you know, I, I'm sure it's, it's, it's very different and more intense if you're like in the military or you're, you know, you're a public servant or something like that. But it was, it was really, really fulfilling. And in terms of like things I learned, I think that we don't learn enough about critical thinking when we're taught in school. Um, and unless we have, you know, we're in debate or something like that as an extracurricular activity, it's really rare for you to learn about critical thinking or someone to teach you just how to think. And I think that what was beautiful about having that as kind of like a first job was that at the NSA and in the intelligence community, your, your whole job is to figure out how to think in order to get some sort of solution to a problem. So whether you're trying to find a bad guy or a bad gal or find a connection to a bad guy or a bad gal, or you're trying to, you know, get, you know, solve this giant puzzle of how do I figure out how these things are connected or I have just to find out some mission or something like that. And I'm being intentionally vague just because, you know, I can't get too far into like what I did. And I know that sounds so mysterious, but it's just, you know, the nature, the nature of that job. But that was one of those things where like the courses and the mentorship and the advisement that I got, like I would not be here today without like having that stint there because I, I learned how to think. One of the things you mentioned is that we don't really learn how to think in schools. It's something you have to sort of learn or stumble across afterwards. And you learn that a lot at the NSA. 
I find that people I talk to can always sort of remember back to their early 20s or some point where they first stumbled onto something or someone mm. who taught them how to think. For me, that was reading Poor Charlie's Almanac. That book just changed oh, my great. life. I was like, oh my God, there's so many different things. Like, there's just so many ways to be, I don't know, a meta thinker, to be more psychologically aware of like how my own brain works, how my own thought processes work that have served me super well throughout the rest of my life so far. You gave a talk at MicroComp earlier this year. And one of the things you talked about that I liked a lot was the way that you break down your decision making. You have this whole framework for how you want to analyze the cause of a problem rather than just the symptoms, which is pretty solid to have because as a founder, you obviously run into tons of problems that if you can't analyze them correctly, your business is not going to last very long. Uh, can you break this model down for us if you remember even what I'm referencing? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I talk about it. I literally whiteboarded it today to a new new hire. So I talk about this all the time. And I think that just to give a little bit of background, when, you, when you're starting a company, and especially if you're in the early stages, and especially if you're bootstrapped, like not all of us have the security and the confidence to change our LinkedIn profile to CEO or founder and then, you know, deal with, you know, people who just don't understand that life, right? I remember when I was early on, I was, you know, basically, you know, kind of embarrassed to call myself a CEO because, you know, the joke was, oh, this means you're unemployed, right? You know, being an entrepreneur. And I know Patrick McKenzie talks about this all the time. Patio 11, for those of you who don't know his actual name, because <laughs> I know he goes more by Patio 11 than anything, you know, especially, you know, his, his, uh, I believe it was his wife's family just didn't understand, you know, being an entrepreneur. But I bring that up because your emotional levels when you're starting a company, and I would argue at most stages, is, is constantly being tested because you not only are trying to create something from nothing, but you're also taking that something and trying to scale it. And then as you scale it, you have, even if you're just trying to create a lifestyle business or an indie business, you have just increased the surface area with every move you make. Any person you hire, any contractor you manage, any additional feature you add, all of a sudden you have more surface area in your business. And you need not only frameworks in your business in general, to handle that surface area properly, even if it's super simple, but you also need frameworks to understand and, and handle the emotional aspects of that business. And that just doesn't mean, you know, not crying yourself to sleep or not blowing up at, you know, your significant other because you're aggravated and pissed off about something that happened in the business, but it also means in how you handle problems. Because the number one problem I found that I had a problem with is that I thrive on crisis and I thrive on reacting. So if something bad's happening or, or, you know, all of a sudden, you know, even if something was good happening and a lot of founders have this, all of a sudden, like I, I would either create the crisis or I would enjoy the crisis and I would basically react and I'm like, all right, I got to solve this problem and I got to solve this problem, right? The issue there is oftentimes when you react, you just try to guess and check your way to a solution, meaning, oh my God, this person's upset with me. Oh my God, my competitor just tweeted this you know, passive aggressive thing to me. Oh my God, this thing happened. And all of a sudden you sit there and if you just react, meaning if you just enjoy the crisis and you instantly react without stopping and thinking, aka guessing and checking... It has a lot of, lot of really bad externalities, you know, because you haven't thought through like the chess game, even if it's a very small chess game of, Hey, what is this customer trying to get at? What is, you know, this person trying to do? And you, you tend to kind of freak out if you don't do that. And so the framework that I recommend is always, you know, when you have that crisis, get to a point where you take what's called the most charitable interpretation of that situation, meaning, okay. My competitor just tweeted this, you know, passive aggressive thing. 
you know, I have to go figure that out. So I have to give him the most charitable interpretation or her the most charitable interpretation. And I have to go, okay, there's something like this person thinks there's something wrong or this person, you know, is, is doing X, Y, Z. Um, and this handles like even a support request that comes in. All right. This person's upset for some reason that maybe they're valid. Maybe they're completely right. Right. That's the most charitable interpretation. And then what I do is, is that gives me that extra second to then think through what is the framework through which I can evaluate what to do in this situation. And then the one that I described to you was problem cause solution. And what this means is that when you have a problem and it, it, maybe it's a support request where someone's aggravated, it could be we're not growing, it could be you know my uh, loved one is mad at me, it could be a whole host of things. A lot of times what we want to do is we want to do that guess and check with that problem. We basically want to respond and like, we got to fix it, we got to fix it, we got to fix it. The issue there is you can't solve a problem. You can only ca- solve causes of a problem. So if we take, you know, world hunger, which I think we all can agree is not great. Like even the most amount of money, you can't just like throw money at this problem and fix it. You have to think through, well, world, world hunger is caused by a whole host of things. Bad irrigation in certain areas, uh, cr- uh, fraud when, you know, aid is sent to certain areas, poor, you know, circulation in crops. It's caused by, you know, the money going to the wrong people. Um, they found that with like, you know, women's funds. You know, if you give women in developing countries the money, it actually goes to actually developing the economy. Then there's, that's a really funny article. If anyone, you know, hasn't read that to look that up. Um, but anyways, I have a bunch of causes to world hunger. And now what I can do is I can evaluate what is the biggest cause here, right? And then based on that, I can solve for those causes. So if irrigation is the number one problem, well, then maybe I should be building irrigation systems in these areas that have hunger issues. Or if fraud's the problem, maybe I should go a political route and go through you know, the State Department or something like that to try and fix the fraud in some particular way. And you know, with really big problems like world hunger, there's like cascading causes and you know, it takes a, lot, a long time to, to kind of get through those. But with that support ticket where someone's aggravated, it might be, well, this person, yes, we have an answer to their question, but the cause of this might be they weren't able to get the right numbers and therefore they looked bad in front of their board or they weren't able to access this because there was some you know, hiccup or a bug in the system, right? So when I understand those causes, I can then like more appropriately give a solution. And sometimes the solution is not to do anything. But with a negative support ticket, I can then do something that's super empathetic. I can say, hey, I know that's really frustrating. And now I've thought through it. And then I can give them the actual solution and then even make up for it. And so bottom line is problems need causes. And then you can solve for the causes because those are the things that will affect that actual problem. Can't solve a problem. You can only solve the causes to a problem. You at some point decided that you wanted to start a company. Do you feel like you were solving a problem by making making that decision? And if so, what were the causes of that problem and how did starting a company solve them? Yeah, I think, honestly, I started a company out of pure hubris, like being a punk mid-20s, you know, kid. Um, <laughs> I think that that's really where it came from. I mean, I so I had worked at, you know, I worked at the Intel community. I was, you know, aggravated with the bureaucracy. You know, one of my mentors, you know, they were joking and they said, oh, that's so-and-so. You know, they've been here 30 years and they haven't worked in the past 15. And I I thought it was just a funny joke, like, oh, we're ribbing each other. And then, no, they were like, no, like, 
this person just can't be fired because of you know government bureaucracy and things like that. And so it just wasn't moving fast enough. I'm a little bit of a, a momentum junkie in terms of growth and building things. And so I, I thought going to Google would solve bureaucracy. And in fact, Google is a really, really nice bureaucracy, but it's, you know, when there, I was there when it was like 30,000 people. So, you know, it was a big company at that point. And, you know, I had worked on some cool stuff that was, you know, similar to, you know, kind of what we're doing now with like value modeling and stuff like that on the pricing side. But it, I was ironically basically using models to find more money for Google. Um, interestingly enough, very similar models that I was using to find bad guys or gals essentially. And what was cool is I worked on this project. It was like a essentially a glorified lead scoring algorithm for the the mid market sales team that I was on, um, and you know I kind of you know did it on the side. This is when I was learning to code and and learning to do you know data visualization and um, kind of taking a lot of my econ understanding and making it useful. And essentially, what what ended up happening is you know I, I made Google a ton of money, um, which was great for for them, and I got this cool award and everything. But they wanted to shut my project down. Because there was this other project that you know was going to make them more money, and I needed to go back to doing this other job because this was all like a side project for me at the time, and you know that that didn't sit well with me, and I was like, oh, I, I don't like this, you know, I don't like this lack of control, right? And so that's why I say it's like hubris because I was like, oh, I can go start a company, I can work for myself, and it's going to be amazing. And so, thankfully, the the smartest decision that I feel like I had no intention of doing is I went and worked for another company called Jimvara, uh, which was a um, customizable jewelry company like Blue Nile. And um, basically, you could customize the gemstones, the metals, these types of things. And what I ended up doing is is they threw to me this, you know, somewhat entry level, not actually entry level, but a younger person, the pricing problem to fix. And they had 1.6 million different SKUs there. And I was working on it and we would make these little changes to pricing here and there and we'd see these really outsized increases or decreases in revenue based on the changes that we made. And so I was there for about nine months and I wasn't really enamored with the culture. Um, you're probably sensing a theme there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then basically was like, all right, well, you know, I'm in my mid twenties. I don't have any like major financial obligations. I very, very much thankfully like had a, um, you know, a merit scholarship to the college I went to. So I didn't have any big student loans. Um, and then basically, you know, jumped out and was like, I'm going to start a company and, I think I'm going to do it on this pricing thing because, you know, this, it's a big problem. And I discovered that no one took it seriously, uh, because it was something that's, you know, relatively hard. And then ultimately it was one of those things where, you know, I, I, I knew it had an impact. And so if I could evangelize that to folks, that could be a company, right? And so I think we started off with basically, you know, that, that concept of, you know, this is something that works and this is something that people don't understand. Um, and that was kind of like the framework of thought. And then it quickly moved into like, okay, how do we solve the pricing problem? Because the pricing problem, really the, the, the root cause of the pricing problem is, you know, people aren't doing anything, right? And then it's like, well, what's the cause of that? Well, people aren't doing anything because they don't know what they should be doing. And we're like, okay, what's the cause of that? And it's like, well, pricing is this weird, like, you know, thing that they just don't know what to do, not because they're not smart, but because they've never done it before, or they really just, you know, they don't, they don't have a good enough confidence in trying to figure out the problem so that they can implement things to, to make their pricing better. And that was like the biggest root cause we found is this confidence gap. And we were like, oh, okay, well, let's build a product that can basically 
close that confidence gap. And the initial product we built was a, a survey tool that basically we had some algorithms we built into it. And essentially you'd go out and you'd collect um, some data. It would go through these algorithms and it would spit out some price elasticity information and some relative preference information, which would hopefully give you confidence in order to make a decision. Well, what we found is that that solution for that cause wasn't enough because we would have people who would go, yeah, like I, I see how this data tells me to do this with my pricing. But like, ah, I just, I don't know. Like, can you, can you just like come talk to my team? You know, can you just come talk to my team? Can you just like help me implement? And we were like, well, that's like service. Like maybe we shouldn't do that because like VCs don't like that. And, and this is when we didn't know if we were going to raise money, not raise money. And so we were like, well, if you pay us, like, sure, we'll do it. And they were like, oh, okay. Yeah. We'll pay you like this much. And this much was, I think our, our first deal was like $1,600. And keep in mind, we were selling $50 a month software here. And I, I keep saying we, but it, it was, I'm essentially a solo founder. I have some advisors early on, but um, it was just me kind of doing this. And I was like, well, let's, let's take the $1,600. And then the next person was like, we'll pay you $10,000. And I was like, oh, interesting. And so that started to solve that root cause. And then there were a bunch of other problems and causes that popped up over time. But that's kind of what, what led us. And, and that was within those first six months of, of kind of figuring that out and kind of digging deep on it. And then, you know, we kind of went to the races with this bigger vision that we've kind of headed down. But that was, that was kind of the thought process that, that really occurred. And, and that's why I encourage a lot of like first time founders, if you're starting a new product, you got to really get to that root cause and, and that root cause of, of why they have that problem that they're that itch they need scratched that that's really where your product should be and i think oftentimes we start with like hey this is a problem like people need to connect you know people need their sales data and their marketing data and then we end up building things that are more like a spreadsheet organizer rather than building just an api integration and so if you did a little bit more thought it allows you to kind of figure out more of an elegant solution or at least the more you know impactful solution if you do that analysis how do you do that analysis? It sounds like you were super good at honing in on the cause of the problem and the cause of that cause and the cause of that cause. Do you remember the yeah. process you were going through to learn all this information? Yeah, exactly. So that's a great question because I, I say it, you know, hopefully somewhat elegantly right now in like a, a pithy one, you know, one minute to 90 second soundbite, but it's, it's a struggle. And I think that what really helped us and, and me at the time was one, you know, Knowing that this is this is a journey, a longer journey, um, meaning, yes, let's do a bunch of things that don't scale, as they say, but let's also make sure that we don't go all in on something until we realize where we're headed. And I think that's the biggest thing, because what ended up happening is we first we had this little tool. We had some people using it. Then we had some people like through our content and things like that contact us. And and, and basically, you know, we, we let that customer basically guide us forward. And the biggest thing that we did to kind of remain thoughtful, and I don't think I did this intentionally, I think it just kind of naturally happened with the cycles of the business because I was doing everything, is I would have these little kind of lulls where get a customer, do a bunch of stuff for that customer, or get a customer, talk to that customer, you know, prospect, etc. And then there would be these little lulls where I needed to go out and get more customers, right? And those lulls allowed me to really think deeply about like what in the world's going on here and just be strategic. And my biggest kind of tactical recommendation here is to take 
whatever you're trying to do and whatever you're trying to solve and, and probably start with something that's a little bit more finite, not like world hunger, which has so many different layers, but hey, this ad campaign isn't working, right? You know, and if it's just like a search ad, for instance, you have the copy, you have the keyword, you have, you know, the landing page, right? All of a sudden there could be multiple causes on those different levers, right? And that that allows you to then like really compartmentalize and get get your strength in terms of this type of analysis. And in for us on a tactical basis, like I would just write this stuff out. I would have problem, I would have cause, and I would have solution. And you know, you, you just have to iterate on it and actually get it out of your head and get it onto a page. And eventually I, I, you know, we got our CPO a couple of years into the business, Facundo, who's, you know, he's a principal engineer and then became like a really, you know, stereotypical product guy. And I mean that in the most loving way in the sense of, you know, wanting to say no, only wanting to build the right thing, not just throwing engineers at things. And then he became a really good tandem partner to kind of talk through these things. And then we essentially like argue, sometimes it's, you know, actually sounds like fighting, but oftentimes it's just like really good discussions on like, well, why should we do that? Well, this is why we should do it. And I'm a little bit more pragmatic and he's a little bit more idealist and finding that tandem partner I think really really helps I don't think they need to be in the business necessarily if you're just doing a solopreneur type venture but they should absolutely be like someone that you talk to about hey trying to figure out you know what you should be building or trying to figure out and challenge your ideas on what you're actually building and where you're going one of the cool things about doing this analysis and sort of teaching yourself the causes of all these problems and writing it down and making sure to do the research is that you're actually becoming kind of an expert yourself. You actually really begin to learn a ton about this problem that you're trying to sell people the solution for. I'm curious how, how those sales conversations went for you in the early days and how you were even finding these customers after you would come back from one of these brainstorming lulls. What did that process look like? Yeah, I think we, thankfully, we also had a mindset. And, and so I'm mixing a couple things here. But thankfully, we also really had a mindset of the, the thing that we rationalize. I think human beings, we are amazing at rationalization, especially post hoc rationalization where, you know, oh, why'd you do that? Well, at the time, you probably really did it for another reason than the one you're rationalizing as to why it turned <laughs> out the way it did. Very right? true. And so I think that for us, we, you know, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we knew service was going to be the thing that took our software to the next level and got us on this like nice growth trajectory. Really at the time we were like, I don't know. But the way we rationalized it was, well, we're going to get paid to do our customer development, right? We're going to get paid to do our customer research. So at the very least, we're going to go into these firms and we're going to, you know, help them with this data and kind of talk them through it. And then that's going to allow us to like learn a ton. And, and, and I think that although we were kind of rationalizing and there was a lot of truth in that because it was one of those things where each of those customers kind of taught us a new thing. And, and really what we learned is that you know, pricing is traditionally a consulting type engagement because there's so much lack of confidence that you need someone who has gray hair and, you know, has basically done this for 30 years in order to help you. And we we're like, okay, well, I'm 25. Like I would, I still like grow a beard because I don't want people to like know how young I am actually. And that was actually caused by some insane insecurity where we got this really small, like, you know, engagement with um, a pretty large software company. And I was so excited. And I just remember going to the, like the, you know, the first meeting after we got the the data and the results and this new CMO turns to me and, and she was, she was a big wig. She was a CMO at a couple of like very famous public companies. And she like, I got like maybe four sentences out of my mouth and it was a day that I'd clean shaven. And she just goes, how old are you? 
like w- just interrupts me. And I was like, Oh, uh, I was like, well, I'm, you know, 25. She's like, well, how long have you been doing this? And I was like, well, company's been around for this long, but, and you get in those insecure where you're like, but I, but I've been an economist and a data analyst for, you know, the last, <laughs> you know, five plus years. Right. And so it's, it's one of those things where I don't know why I went on this tangent, but basically it was one of those things where like, it just taught us like, oh, this is how this person sees the world. I go hire yeah. McKinsey or Simon Kutcher and this is how I solve this problem. Well, does that particular solution work? No, because we chased that down and we found out, oh, like they just buy this like six-week engagement for $500,000 and then all of a sudden they don't do anything. Like they don't implement anything. It's the same PowerPoint deck that they probably sold to three other companies. And it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, interesting. So how do we actually solve this problem then? but also mix it in a way that it becomes palatable to the customer, right? And and that allowed us to basically kind of figure out, okay, well, we have this service element. And as we get those additional customers, like the service element's important. And then over time, it became, well, we're still having the service element and we're giving them like this really good data, but they're not implementing it. Well, we need to be on a subscription model for this product. And that's when it became what's called a tech-enabled service, essentially. And then eventually it's it's going to be like our retained product where we're building, you know, some of these mechanical pieces that, you know, we can basically have you set it up, connect it right to your Stripe account, and then it'll just automatically optimize your pricing um, and kind of go go from there. And so Long story short, it was it was it was a good way to basically get this information to then have those little brainstorming sessions. And, and the way that we got our customers, frankly, like just started blogging. We had a free HubSpot account, thankfully, because we're in Boston, and you know HubSpot accounts were just running around back then. But uh, no, we just we knew someone. Um, person on our board is is actually the the head of product at HubSpot, and so he was like, "Hey, use this this inbound marketing thing's like good." And we we're like, "Oh, okay." And so we we basically started blogging. And and what really helped there is, we found this out in hindsight, pricing is one of those things. Again, no one really knows what they're doing or what it's about, but they know it's important. So we would write a blog post that was pretty basic. And all of a sudden, people would be like, oh my God, this was so helpful because my boss asked me about this thing. And that just kind of started the nice little flywheel going where we'd have people come through content. And then you know they, they wanted a solution for this problem when they knew it was a problem. And, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, which is, you know, it's one of those pieces that, you know, you, you really just need to know that this is a growth lever in order to, to want to like fix it. It's so interesting because I, I meet so many people who have trouble coming up with ideas. And just in like yeah. one speaking term that you're talking, uh, it just gives me tons of ideas because you're, you're mentioning these different problems. I think at one point you mentioned, you know, how do you get ads working? Well, I hear people constantly complain, hey, I'm trying to run Facebook ads, but it seems like they work worse and worse over time. How do I fix that? Like That's an opportunity for someone to do what you did. Really dive into the problem, talk to people, figure out what they're trying, why it's working, why it's not working, learn a lot, start blogging about it, etc. Blogging. A lot of people don't get their content marketing and blogging to work the way that you guys were able to get it to work early on and find your first customers. Why is that? Well, you can talk to lots of different people who are working on content marketing and who are blogging at their companies and see what's working for them and what they're trying. And you can just learn a lot about any of this, no matter what level you're at. And end up becoming sort of an expert and teach other people what you know, and then get your first sales through doing what you did. I talked to Jason Cohen. He's the founder of WP Engine. Yeah. He said something very interesting, which is that for any advice you hear someone give, uh, there's someone equally as smart, equally as experienced, who'll probably give you the exact opposite advice somewhere. <laughs> I've heard so many people say, you know, the worst thing you can do as a founder is start selling to big companies right off the bat because then you're going to be locked in. And you're not going to be able to escape. You're going to be sort of a slave to whatever these companies want, and that's going to shape your product, et cetera. 
you guys did the exact opposite. It worked out really well for you. You learned so much yeah. in these conversations. You sort of got your flywheel spinning. You figured out where you wanted to go. I know someone might give the opposite advice, but why would you suggest founders to go the same path that you did? Yeah, I think first, I think that, and, and this may be speaking to Jason's point, like I think what you just said about big companies is insane. Like you're never a, you're never like a slave to any customer. Like you can fire customers, right? And, and it sucks, but I think that it's one of those things that you absolutely can. I, I think if I, if I maybe go on another tangent, which I've done a couple of times here, I think the big thing you have to be doing is pursuing truth. Like truth is the number one thing that guides us. We're starting to make it part of our marketing because we just talk about it so much internally. Because if you think about your business, it doesn't matter what your business is. If, if you're trying to solve a particular problem and you start getting down a path and you discover that that problem, the highest leverage you have for that problem is selling to a big company, you absolutely should do it or you should figure out another product, right? Um, or another problem. And I think that we get too caught up in trying to bend the world to our truth rather than discovering the actual truth that's, that is out there. Uh, I, I talk to so many, you know, I love microconf. I love, you know, that this crowd, I, I want to be a part of it. I feel like an imposter sometimes because, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, there's just so much cool stuff going on, but it's one of those things where I meet so many people who are like, Hey, I'm going to build this for this community. And you're like, why? And they're like, well, I just think that, you know, it's not as blunt as this, but it's like, I just think that, you know, they, they should have it. And it's like, why don't you go build to this person where I know I have some data or I know I have some information that will help you? Oh, no, I don't want to like support those types of people because, you know, they're big companies and they, they have big company problems. And it's like, okay, well, it doesn't sound like you're pursuing truth, right? And for us, it was the truth came down to, oh, small companies, no matter how many times we tell them you should think about your pricing and you shouldn't do all the things that a big company would do, but small companies, they have too much, too much stuff going on to, to think about the pricing. And it's not just like, hey, they're, they're focusing too much on acquisition and they're not thinking about their pricing enough, but they got to figure out payroll. They got to figure out, you know, they're getting yelled at because they got to, you know, go pick up their kid or something like, like there's just so much going on at early stage that no matter what we tell you, no matter how much we talk about the pricing till we're blue in the face, you're not going to focus on it as much as you should. And we're just like, okay, well, who starts to focus on it? Well, we started to notice that unless a board member or an advisor or so someone basically says, hey, you need to focus on this, or unless there's a huge problem and it's very clear the pricing is screwed up, normally right around $10 million, that, that level a year, that's when companies start to like kind of care about this because they have enough bandwidth, they have enough like, you know, people power to kind of consider this as a particular, you know, growth lever. And then as you kind of increase the complexity changes and, and trust me, we have definitely some companies that we probably shouldn't have worked with that were very, very large that, you know, it just wasn't good for our product. Um, but it was one of those things where that's kind of where we picked the market. And, you know, it's a little ironic that we have this free product um, because it's zero dollars, but really we tend to try to target people who are, are a bit bigger, you know, this mid market or enterprise to sell our actual paid products to, uh, because those are the ones that we know have the pain. Um, and, and so long story short, I think it's, you have to pursue that truth because that truth is going to be a little bit different depending on the problem. And if you, if you bend tr like the, the world to your truth, you're probably not doing it properly. You have to be more intellectually honest with what's going on in your life or what's going on with, with your, your customer base that you're trying to seek or the product you're trying to build. Because ultimately, like you can't control what people want. You have to kind of 
guide them to solving the problem that they actually have. You know, I think one of the one of the stumbling blocks that people have here is that all this data collection, all of this research, all of this learning just takes so much time. It's months and months, yeah. years and years of work. Like I don't even want to know how many companies you had to talk to for you to recognize that $10 million was sort of a special revenue threshold where above that it was easier for you to sell into these mm-hmm. companies. How did you have the patience? How did you stick through this years of learning and updating your product and updating your sales pitch? Yeah, I think, I mean, you say it like that, but I, I look back and I'm like, again, these are really good 90 second sound bites, but you know, it's, it's, it's all episodic, right? It's all like, you know, and that's, that's what's beautiful about, you know, growth is like sometimes you're down, sometimes you're too far up for where you're at, you know, those, those types of things. But as long as that line, and, and this maybe is a line of learning or a line of, you know, information is going up and to the right and you're able to kind of consolidate it and think through things. That, that's great. And so for me, I think that really got me going was just having the addiction to finding the truth. And so that was a big thing. I, I started the company more so, you know, I mentioned um, before, like out of hubris, because I was like, well, if I'm going to do all this work and, and make someone else this money, like maybe I should, maybe I should be my own boss and, and make the money. Right. So it was kind of, it wasn't quite all about the money, but it, it kind of had too much of that, that tint to things. And then, you know, as I got into this, I was like, oh, this is hard. You know, there's easier ways to make money, <laughs> you know, by, besides building a company, right? And I got into this just this love for the momentum and this love for, you know, searching for the truth and wanting to know the truth and just getting addicted to solving the puzzle, right? And the beauty of founding a company is that if you're trying to, you know, you're trying to build a product or you're a builder, there's infinite puzzles when you're solving, you know, you're trying to solve things and there's puzzles, you know, they don't have to be big puzzles. You don't have to have a big company to solve these puzzles, but Oh, like, how should I set up this? Let's figure out this puzzle. Uh, Oh, I have this problem with HR, you know, type stuff, but I don't want to hire an HR person because I want to keep the company small. Let's figure out that puzzle. Right. And so for us, it was, or for me in particular, it was more about getting to the emotion of what really drove me. And then ultimately making sure that that truth that I was seeking was what drove me. And then that I had good support systems around me, which I didn't always have for you know pretty much my whole life until you know starting the company. Um, having the right team, which you know we still have issues with, but you know we're we're building a company, so that's that ups and downs. Having the right partners, which I also had issues with, but you know figuring out those ups and downs. And then finally, like surrounding that with like good family and good support system. In terms of like the time for research, I think that. You, you really have to understand that you're going to make mistakes and you should optimize for speed, but you also have to realize that at the same time, you need to optimize for being smart about the resources and time that you're using, which means that some of the time that you should spend is on that research. And, and that's a really, really hard thing to grapple with and you're going to make a lot of mistakes. We still make mistakes with this, but we rarely spend enough time thinking through what makes the most sense. Even when we're like, hey, let's plan our OKRs. Well, we don't want to plan our OKRs or things like that because you know, we don't want to take that much time because we want to take the time to do the thing. And it's like a little bit of like, you know, what is it? A little bit of prevention or an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or whatever it is. A little bit of prevention, a little bit of research, a little bit of understanding, you know, what's going on. Even if it's like a month, you know, when you're, you're trying to figure stuff out, that's worth going through, even though there's not revenue, even though there's not like momentum being felt, even though it doesn't feel like something's happening. It's, it's worth getting addicted to that, that 
you know, truth. Because then all of a sudden when you're like, cool, I figured something out. I think for the next two months, we should build this thing and distribute it and see what happens. Then all of a sudden you get this nice flywheel going of like the quickest path to learning, learning as much as possible, implementing that learning. Okay, we have another problem. We need to learn more. Let's go learn. Oh, we've learned it. Now let's build it in. And and just kind of like getting these cycles going within your business rather than just reacting to everything. Yeah, this strikes me as a good argument for why you might want to start a service business up front because you immediately start bringing in revenue because you're, you're able to charge customers versus oftentimes uh, I would get addicted to this sort of momentum of learning and pushing forward. But it would be in the pre-revenue days of some of my older businesses. And I was really just addicted to solving the problem of product development. And so I would just be coding yeah. over and over. And there's like lots of fun problems to solve there. But is that the same thing as really driving your business forward? Not really. Whereas if you actually have mm-hmm. revenues, you actually have customers, you have employees who you need to take care of, you're sort of uh, biased towards solving problems that matter. You can't really spend all your time with your head in the ditch working on your code, working on your product without talking yeah. to people because you know your revenue is not going up. Well, and it's, but what's interesting about it is, you know, to Jason's point, the other side of that coin is I think that people get addicted to the money in service businesses. And, and not like addicted to a lot of money, right? But it's a little quicker money, right? It's not quicker learn, or it, it can be quicker learning, but it also can be quicker money. And what we found is it, it took a, like, it, it wasn't hard for me because I had this, you know, going after this like vision and this mission of, you know, these hard parts of subscription, subscription growth. And, you know, I, I didn't characterize it in that particular language or anything like that then, but it was, you know, I I have this mission. I want to build something great. I want to build something big. I want to solve this problem. I want to build, 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 build. But, you know, for some people, it's really hard to look at, you know, I think our first calendar year, we ended up closing $450,000 in revenue. And it was really, really hard to look at that and go, okay, like I'm still only going to make $50,000 next year, you know, because I need to hire these people and I need to find, you know, someone who's a full stack engineer or a lead engineer or head of product or something like that. And then it's really hard to look at that revenue growing and go, oh, you know what, this like new thing we've been kind of building this metrics product, like everything indicates that this should be free because, you know, all the data indicates that that's the right move. Okay, now we have to hire an engineering team that literally isn't going to build on the thing that's making us money right now, but is going to build this free product. And that <laughs> means like all this profit, you know, or all this revenue is going to go in investing back into the business, right? And that that's like people thought we were nuts, you know, and and maybe we still are. I don't know. Like it's but it's one of those things where we're like, okay, well this this is the long-term vision, this is the long-term mission and I think that you know, maybe it's not necessarily a pursuit of truth. Maybe it's something different from you, but you got to stay connected to the mission. And on the other side of that, you, you might be fine with a service business where you're pulling down 100K a year net and you are working 20 hours a week, right? Like that's the, you know, the four hour work week dream, right? You know, that type of thing. And I don't think you should apologize or, or think you're lesser because that's your view, but I think you should be honest with yourself that that's your view. I know that I wanted to build, you know, a business that, could make a dent in some part of the universe, right? To use kind of the cliche that a lot of people talk about. And if I wanted to do that, there's probably better ways that I can do it. But that also meant that I was okay not making that much money because I was like focused on the long term. And I probably need to be coached a little bit to to not like shoot myself in the foot. But I don't think that that's better or worse than someone who goes, 
I just want to build a business that brings in $3,000 a month to supplement my income and pay for my mortgage. Or I want to just, you know, build a services business that pulls in 200 grand a year or whatever it is. And I think we get a little too caught up in, you know, looking at, you know, what other people's truths are, other people's lives are and thinking, oh, that's what I need when you just be honest with yourself, which, you know, is easier said than done. What do you wish you had known about transitioning from a services business and to more of a product business, a SaaS business? Um, I think that that's a really good question. I think that we handle the transition pretty, pretty well because we've never considered ourselves a service or a consulting business. And we always grimace when everyone calls us a consulting business because we're like, no, there's software. We just don't, you just don't log in. Like, you know, um, <laughs> And it's actually really sophisticated. Like these algorithms are actually really complex and they've been developed and things like that. And so, yeah, I think it was, I think it was one of those things where in in hindsight, I think I would have loved to know that, and this is more broad, has nothing to do with service to software, but I'll answer that question in a second. I wish I would have known that wisdom needs to be learned. It can't be taught because there are certain things in your business, like, I'm, I probably said one or two things on here that like everyone nods their head and is like, Oh yeah, that makes sense for me and my business. But until you actually feel and learn it, like no amount of like podcasts, no amount of like books or anything like that are going to help with that. So like a good example of that is you, you have to probably make a bad hire or four or five bad hires before you realize why you're making the bad hires. You know, because even though that person told you that it's really important to find someone who can do X when you're hiring an engineer, maybe you rationalize and think, oh, well, they can learn it on the job or they can figure it out. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, no, they really did need to know that particular thing or they really needed to, you know, have that particular trait or attribute. And that's, that's a really, really big thing because I would get really down on myself because I would be like, oh, Oh man, that person told me that thing. And, you know, I, I made that mistake and and I didn't realize things are going to take longer than they are. Oh man, I'm failing. I'm failing. Right. Um, when in reality, it's just kind of part of the, part of the journey. Now from services to a software company, I think that one of the really, really big things is the communication with your team. So we as, as a bootstrap company, we ended up basically saying, okay, well, we don't want to sacrifice this revenue right now because that's, you know, eight, 10 people's jobs at the time. And so we want to make sure this is kind of like a separate thing, but we don't really know how it's going to merge. Right. And I think what would have been better, and I've been talking to, you know, some folks who are, have been doing some services stuff and now they're coming out with software is it's probably better to just launch it under one brand. And then, you know, almost position it as, hey, we have this software, even if it's very different, but assuming it's like at least somewhat connected, you know, to your service business. Now, if it's, hey, we're going to build, you know, I know like Nick Francis over at Help Scout, like they had a service agency and then all of a sudden they built the help desk, like maybe didn't make sense to launch that under the same brand. But if we're helping the same type of customer, it probably would have helped to launch under the same brand um, rather than kind of, you know, causing confusion. Because then people didn't really know. They're like, well, you do this pricing thing, but then you have this like other product. Is that just lead gen? And yeah, it's just one of those things where getting that product marketing, you know, even directionally correct early on, I think can really, really help your business because you've already spent so much time getting these leads for your service side or your tech enabled service side. And it's one of those things you want to use those leads naturally to also be good for your other products rather than trying to build from scratch over again. 
So today you have quite a few products. And I, I know because I, I had to make a mental note to myself while I was preparing for this interview to um, not call you price intelligently over and over. It's just like what <laughs> naturally comes out the second I say the P and profit well, I'm like price intelligently. You. But you've got more than just price intelligently. You've got a product called Retain, which helps customers reduce their churn. You've got a product called Recognized. Uh, you just released a whole bunch of different products earlier this week. You've got another product called Metrics. How different is it to launch a brand new product versus launching a new business from scratch? What are some of the similarities and what are some of the differences? Oh, that's a really great question. I think, yeah, it's it's what's really funny about it is is just like a side note here is that it it's really figuring out, you know, that core, like what you're driving towards. Because if if you notice, and maybe you have to squint a little bit to see it, like all of our our products are kind of converging on a similar theme, right? Where, you know, we help subscription companies with, you know, these different things, right? And, you know, there's like a sub-thesis there as to why ProfitWell metrics is free. And then, you know, we launch different features and things like that. And so I think that, you know, in terms of, you know, what's what's the differentiation of, of launching new products? I, I, I don't have a really good advice on like, if you're launching a brand new product, like multiple products to different customer bases, because then I think you're just kind of like reinventing, you know, the same thing that you did, hopefully iterating on it for just like a different customer base. I think for us, where we struggle is, and you kind of alluded to this as well with like the price intelligence, now it's profit well, is, you know, just our product marketing in general. Um, and so when you're launching uh, new features or new products underneath your umbrella, I think it's, it's a really good opportunity to start to re-educate the market. So what we did recently this week is we, we did, um, and I, I'm embarrassed to say it this way, but it's the quickest way to kind of explain it is, you know, we, Apple had some event and we we're like, why doesn't, why doesn't a SaaS company do that? Um, why don't we like launch stuff like Apple does? And obviously it's not going to have all the press and all that kind of fun stuff, or maybe one day it will, but why don't we do it like that? Why is it always like product hunt and just like a blog post and stuff like that? It just doesn't feel like it makes enough sense. And so, we did, we basically did an Apple style event, you know, it was, it was on, you know, Zoom, but, you know, we, we did a bunch of work, you know, where we actually were able to like retell that story. And I think that's where, you know, whether it's a feature or a product, like I think that launching that particular aspect is another opportunity to kind of educate that story. And I think, you know, Stripe, I think does that really well because, you know, every time it's like, well, this is our mission, you know, to, you don't necessarily say it all the time, like increase the GDP of the internet, but you can kind of see that all of those different pieces are contributing towards that. And for us, I don't think we've really figured out what that tagline is or that pithy like mission is quite yet, but it's one of those things where we're like, all right, we need to re-educate folks on this is what ProfitWell is. This is what we're trying to do because a couple of months ago, or maybe it was a couple of weeks at this point, I can't even remember, um, you know, I tweeted out like, how would you describe profitable to someone? And, you know, everyone was like, oh, this pricing consultancy, this pricing consultancy, this pricing consultancy. And we're like, oh my <laughs> God. Oh no. oh no. It was like, if, if you ever want to like scare the life out of you, just tweet out, you know, how would you describe, you know, X, the company, and just get excited for, you know, oh, everyone who's known us for the past six, seven years thinks we're this. And then everyone who's known us the past two years thinks we're this. All right. We got to get better at product marketing. We got to get better at educating. And so, yeah, I think long story short, I think there's, you know, you got to treat each feature as a product launch. And I think that there's some differences just in terms of the depth you go to. So, you know, we have a segment integration that we haven't officially announced to our base or anything like that. We're not going to do a launch video and a bunch of other stuff for that. But 
we're going to think in that framework so that we can use it as to how do we tell the story? Even if it's as simple as, hey, you know, our biggest mission is to do X, you know, the hard parts of subscription growth. Part of that is making it easy for you to do the hard parts of subscription growth. And part of that is making sure we, you know, integrate and use the right tools that you already do. So that's why we're so excited to announce the segment integration, because now with all the other things you can do, you can automatically install the snippet, profitable snippet in order to get your engagement metrics or install retain or install, you know, some of the other products that rely on that snippet. And so there, even though the bulk of that article or bulk of whatever that's going to be is going to be about like the actual feature and segment integration, I'm basically retelling the story of the why, which I think has a really, really good externalities on your base um, and ultimately helping them refer people and helping them, you know, be, be a part of that community. So one of the common themes I'm hearing here is just education. It's been a big part of what you're doing since the beginning of your business. And even now you're educating people as to how you work and how the things you're doing can help them. Uh, a lot of businesses don't have this focus on education. Uh, how do you think you can differentiate between whether or not you know the business you're starting is something you're really going to have to get good at teaching people about or mm. something you can just start executing on? Is there, are there any sort of markers that delineate? I think that it's how transactional the product or business is, right? So on, on one end of the spectrum, if you have an e-commerce company, not all e-commerce companies, but a lot of e-commerce companies, it's purely transactional. If you think about like a commodity transaction, like an auto part, or I can't think of another commoditized thing, like, you know, if there was a bean company that sold beans online, like, right? Like yeah, that's such paper a commodity, clips. right? Yeah, paper, something like that. Like you have a commoditized, it's like purely transactional, you probably like there's a very minor education you need to do and the education you're probably going to do is trying to convince them to buy a premium version versus that regular version right it's not going to be about hey this is why you need paper clips and this is why paper clips are so important and these types of things right now if you go one one step up the stack there there's probably e-commerce companies especially subscription e-commerce companies where why do I need to buy my protein powder on a subscription basis, right? Like that's that's a product, you know, muscle box, right? And it's like, okay, I don't know. Like someone needs to educate me, right? Is it because it's cheaper? Is it because it's better? Is it like, you know, what is it for, right? Or, you know, maybe it's... um you know, there's, there's box of the month companies in the hot sauce space. Like that's a pure delight thing. So you need to educate me on why it's delightful and you're going to be able to give me different hot sauces that are curated and, you know, are well thought out. Right. And then you might go up another level of abstraction and it's like, oh, these are, you know, software products that I need to use every day. Right. And okay, well, I need to probably educate that person on some level, either through the user onboarding or through telling stories or, you know, blogging or something like that why this product's important and why the way that we do this is important, right? And then, you know, even higher than that is like very similar because you still need to do all those things with with these products. But these products, then you need to tell them why they need it, right? And, and why it's so important that they, you know, focus on their pricing. And to be really frank with you, if I was trying to build a product that you know, it was like a indie product or something, right? I, I wasn't trying to grow to a 10 million beyond business, but I was trying to, you know, basically put something together that was, I don't know, like, you know, just for, you know, 5K a month, 10K a month. And, and yeah, if it grew really big, cool. But, you know, I'm just trying to get to a minimum. I think I would focus on, you know, more like transactional products, not quite paper clips, of course, but more things that, you know, already had a requirement you know, already had like, I need a CRM. I need, you know, something that connects X to Y. I have this problem. I have this pain and it's easy to understand and I don't need a lot of education and the sales cycles are relatively small and the retention is good. 
And the reason for that is because one of the biggest problems that we face is, you know, people don't realize it's a problem. And if people don't realize a problem, they're not necessarily seeking it out. And if they're not seeking it out, it's really, really hard for, you know, us to basically um, help them, right? We have to get in front of them, which is, you know, a much, much harder battle, right? And we're kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to solve this ourselves. So we're moving, you know, our retained products, we're going to start calling it, you know, a customer success solution, because that's an actual space that people search for things. And they already have a requirement or sub requirements for a customer success solution, right? And so it's just one of those things where, you know, that space and that market, which is one of the original things we talked about, is, is so important to kind of realize depending on what you're trying to do as a business. And if you're more transactional, it's going to be a lot easier because people are going to seek things out. You don't have to educate. If you're less transactional or it's just something that doesn't really have a requirement right now, then you're probably going to have to, you know, have a little bit more of an uphill battle. And therefore the uphill battle should, should hopefully have some sort of outcome that is, that is very advantageous or else you shouldn't just go up that uphill battle. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. If you're moving into a crowded or competitive space where there's lots of players and it's established and customers already know what's going on, then you don't have to do as much education because there's sort of a history there and your competitors have educated people as well. Whereas if you're going into sort of a new space and you're blazing a new trail, you're going to have to do a lot of education. And I think one of the hidden advantages to that also is that you might have a little bit more pricing power. If there's no competitors who come before you, you can kind of set the price where you want it to, because there's not that much competitive pressure bringing down the price. Mm. So let's talk about pricing for a little bit. How should founders think about pricing when they're starting their companies? And also, is this important to get right up front, or is it something that's more important mm. to just tweak and modify later on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, so, you know, as Patty Eleven says, charge more. Um, I think that's a big thing. But But I think what's behind that is, I think you have to think about what you're trying to do and where you're going to get the most leverage. And so, what I mean by that is when you think about what you're, what you're trying to do in an early stage, the actual number probably doesn't matter as much as, as you might think. Like, is it $10 versus $11? That probably is very inconsequential to your growth because that's not the biggest like problem or the biggest cause of the problems you're facing. And so it's one of those things where we recommend in the early days, don't worry about the number necessarily figure out what level of product you are. Are you like a $10 product? Are you a $100 product? Are you a $300 product? Are you a $1,000 product, right? And really evaluate that and maybe collect some information or talk to a few prospects or talk to you know some folks on how they see your product or your the, the problem that you're facing or the problem that you're trying to solve or kind of remedy what that looks like in terms of like value. Because I think often what, ta- what happens in the early stage, I have at least found it easier not to start in the enterprise necessarily, but start not in the $10 a month, $50 a month range. So if I'm selling a product that you know may cost 50 bucks a month, I might actually want to put that in the early days at 200 bucks a month or $150 per month because I want to find the people who really care enough that they're almost willing to buy it even at a higher price. It's kind of like a price skimming kind of concept. And so that's, that's if I was like a $50 or $100 product. Now, if I'm a $1,000 product, Maybe I'm going to put that price at $5,000 up front because I want to find those people who care enough and are going to be that invested. And you got to be careful with this. You can't go so out of control because then you're just not going to get any traction, especially in the early days. But don't worry too much about the price point. Worry about like where you are in terms of, you know, kind of a price level. I think the other thing, and this is the most important thing, is in the early days, the one thing that you should obsess over 
is what your value metric looks like. And your value metric is, you know, what you charge for. Is it per user, per hundred visits, per, you know, thousand widgets or what'sits or whatever it actually ends up being. And the reason that this is so, 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 so crucial is that all the data indicates that you can get everything else wrong or get everything else not to be optimized. But if you get your value metric right, not even the level of value metric you give away, but just picking the right thing to charge along, that will actually save you most of the time. And so what I encourage early stage founders to do is, is not to think about like the price point and should they do a discount? Should they enter prices in nines or fives? Should they put the you know most expensive plan on the left side of the page versus the right side of the page is really spend that time thinking about how you should charge and what's going to be the best lever for ratcheting those customers up. Because ultimately what ends up happening is, is that your customers expand their revenue or end up being a high price customer versus a low price customer based on their actual value usage. Are they adding more seats? Well, they're going to start paying you more. Are they basically, you know, using more email addresses? They're going to pay you more. Are they going to use more visits? They're going to pay you more. And they're typically more than happy to because if you got your value metric right, they totally realize, well, I'm getting more videos in my account, presumably in my marketing, you know, video product more videos in my account means I'm making more money. Yeah, totally. I'm more than happy to pay, you know, Wistia more cash. Um, and if they start using less, they don't necessarily churn out, but they might actually, you know, contract in revenue, which is, you know, absolutely better than losing that particular customer. And so that's where you see, you know, I don't like talking about like public companies that did really well before their IPOs, but I think Slack is still a good example where the value metric really drove that business where their free plan basically only being available you know up to the 10,000 messages essentially and then adding those additional users because as soon as those users converted that those accounts were 100 200 per month they weren't just 10 bucks a month with one seat or something like that and then all of a sudden as people added users they obviously started paying more because slack basically became so central to to their businesses and so value metrics and then just kind of figuring out where you are in the world in terms of price level and then i would recommend starting high and then coming down if you feel you need to because it's so much easier to lower prices or even experiment with lowering prices than it is to, you know, raise prices over time because you might just not have the guts to do it because we all get squirrely when we want to ask people for more money. Oh yeah. I want to talk about that because it's so counterintuitive for a lot of early stage founders who think that they basically can't get away with charging more when they're so small. But first I want to talk a little bit more about value metrics. What's an example of a company doing a bad job at choosing a value metric? Oh, that's a really good question. You're going to put me on the spot to talk crap about someone. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I don't have a specific company and I might think of one as I'm saying this, but most of the time per user pricing is not the right value metric. Per user pricing is this relic of the perpetual license days when we would basically just sell licenses to people, you know, for software. And then we were like, oh, we have this cloud and this SaaS thing, you know, oh, let's just use the license thing, right? And the issue there is for most companies and most products, the value isn't actually in per user. And the best test of this is if you can log in to, you know, someone else's login and get the exact same experience as if you logged in with your your own login, that value metric shouldn't be per user. And instead, you should probably give away unlimited users to boost your retention and then price on some other axes. Whereas like CRMs, help desks, chats, these types of things, if I log in, 
I get my own, you know, my own leads or my own chats and those types of things. Um, but those are, those are typically some bad value metrics. I, I haven't really thought of like a good one. Um, the other, I think another like not so great one is, I mean, you see this in the analytics space a lot, um, where companies will charge, analytics space is really, really hard to charge along because unless you're kind of in the mid-market or enterprise, and that's why most of these companies end up going up market, you know, the, there's just not as much of a requirement. There's not as much willingness to pay. But some some companies will charge, um, not only in analytics, but also in other businesses, charge based on how like how big the data set is or how big, you know, the 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 company is. And normally what ends up happening is if your product doesn't scale naturally in terms of value with the size of, of your customer, you end up running into a situation where people are like, why, why are you taxing me for, for being bigger, growing or something like that? And you should find, find a new one. And, and sometimes it's really hard because sometimes there just isn't a better value metric and you kind of have to go in understanding that. Yeah, I can actually name a couple examples that align perfectly with both of those principles you just you just lined up. Hrefs, which I use for basically SEO for indie hackers, I think they charge more per seat. But every month, I'm kind of like, well, it'd be nice if like my brother could log in to Hrefs easily, but I yeah. don't really want to pay double <laughs> for him to get the same exact features that I have. So I'll just yeah. give him the password to my account, uh, and I've just never upgraded and added another seat to Hrefs. And then another one is Amplitude, which I use for metrics and analytics. It's like super free right now. I pay nothing for Amplitude and I get a ton of value from Amplitude. And every now and then they call me and try to get me an upgrade. But the upgrade is like, I don't know, like thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. It's like a huge jump up Sheesh. from free. And yeah. I'm like, I can't afford that. And it's not worth that much to me. And so I'm kind of in this awkward no man's land. So it's pretty interesting oh, to think about. I just thought of a, another good one. That, that's a really good one too. Like DocuSign is like this. I don't know if you deal with DocuSign, but... We use one DocuSign for the entire company. And that includes like our, or I think we use technically two. We use one for like HR, people ops types things. And then we use one for the sales team. And the sales team all just uses the same login basically. And it's just, it's just kind of funny because like they'll occasionally contact us and they'll be like, oh, it appears like you're over the fair use limit. And we're like, and that's normally when we just had, you know, because we have some episodic sales periods. And we'll be like, oh, our usage will go down. But it's, it's, it's also like, I can't think of, like a better, you know, value metric because the markets become so commoditized, right? Like, you know, there's so many right. different, you know, customer types of, you know, DocuSign type products out there that if we put out, you know, some sort of, you know, other products like that charge based on the number of like contracts, then we'd run into the problem where people are like, well, why are you taxing me for being, you know, awesome, right? <laughs> you know, and so yep. I think it's one of those things where this is where bands come into play really well. So, you know, if you like, if you do a histogram analysis of, and they're really straightforward, just Google um, histogram analysis, and there's great YouTube videos. But if you do a histogram analysis on, you know, your usage of the value metric that you might be wanting to, you know, charge along, you'll start to see these really interesting, like, you know, bands of users. And that'll help you figure out, like, oh, well, maybe we should have tier one be zero to 10 DocuSigns a month. Because, you know, of the people in that group, they never really go over eight. Um, but if they go over eight and if they go over 10, like they definitely should upgrade to our 11 to 25 DocuSigns per month, right? And if you do those those bandings right, what ends up happening is you don't have a lot of aggravation between, you know, those those precipices, but you don't have you don't have a lot of like 
problems there because the people who truly are going over that amount, they're more than happy to because they've kind of reached that next level of being a customer. They've kind of changed over from being one of those customers. But you also leave you know, the power on, on your side to enforce that overage. So one of the, my favorite things with Wistia, what they would do is when you would go over, they would, the first time you went over, they would go, Hey, just so you know, you went over, we're not going to like automatically charge you or, or, you know, charge you an overage or anything like that. Um, but if it just happens, you know, next month, we'll, we'll bump you up to this plan, which, you know, makes sure that you have enough videos and they would get people who would basically go to that particular email and they would just auto upgrade. Like they would just click a button to upgrade already. And it was just kind of amazing because they were, you know, and then for the people who, you know, accidentally or had a really good month, they were just so thankful that the company didn't auto upgrade them essentially. And so it just gives you a lot more opportunities if you just understand, you know, what's going on with those bands and things like that. Yeah, I think Postmark does something like that where I went over my limit. I used them to send transactional emails and they sent me some sort of friendly nudge that I was over my limit, but it was okay. And then I was kind of embarrassed. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go upgrade to an even higher plan than I actually need because I don't want them to have to send me some sort of embarrassing reminder email like this in the future that I'm not paying for what I'm using. And I wonder how many other people also upgrade and pay more than they really need to because of that great email. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about that other topic that I sort of put on hold for a second, which is this concept that as a founder, thinking about how to price your startup, you shouldn't be thinking about like these micro changes, like should I charge $10 or $11? But you should be thinking on more of an order of magnitude level. Like should I be charging $10 or $100 or $1,000 for my product? And not only that, but that you should generally favor charging more, especially in the early stages, which is super counterintuitive. Usually if you're an early stage founder, you're thinking, I can't charge that much because I'm just one person, maybe two people building this really simple product. All of my competitors are so established. The only way I can get a break is if I charge less than everybody else. But you should probably be doing the exact opposite of that. Can you elaborate on why that is? I think, I mean, <laughs> I feel like Patrick McKenzie has the best like articles on this. It's like, I think, I think it's just one of those things that I've met, you know, I've met many types of founders, but I think there's 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 commonly two buckets. There's there's one bucket where you know, and, and we've had to have these conversations when they're customers where they think that their product is worth so much more than it actually is. And basically what ends up happening is you have to be like, hey, you know this thing that you really, really value and you think is really, really valuable? Well, all data, no matter how we slice it, no matter who we asked, no matter what we did, and we cleaned it seven different ways, it indicates the value just isn't there because you know the market's like this or something like that. And then the other group are the people who basically are like, hey, I don't think this is valuable enough because uh, just it, it only took me two weeks to build or, you know, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's just, they're not going to want to buy it. Like this, this insecurity, right? And like this group, this latter group is about 85 to 90% of founders. <laughs> and so I think it's one of those things where, especially in Europe, by the way, like Europe, there's just like this weird complex of like, oh, we're just not going to be as good as, you know, the US products. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, no, like it's software, like it doesn't have a boundary or a border. I mean, yes, there's some laws that you have to be careful of depending on where you're based. But like, it's just one of those things that I think that that insecurity is is, is driving everything you do. So what I would encourage those folks to do is kind of stick a step back and go, like, what do you got to lose? Like, what do you got to lose to trying it for a month? Like you're already making no money or you're already making very little money. Like what do you got to lose by putting, you know, that price point? And, and I think, I think he'd be okay if I shared this, but 
I had this conversation with um, a Colin from Float. You know, he's a good good friend. Um, just from you know the world of SaaS, we met through you know online and all that kind of fun stuff. And I just remember being like, "What are you going to lose is doing it for a month." You know, you have no pressure right now. They were funded and everything, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. But all the data was kind of hedging the decision to like raise the price. And I was like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Like, you're going to, you're going to miss out on your number. Well, you're, 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 you're already kind of, you know, not hitting the number you want. So that's okay. Right. And then, you know, they do it. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, our conversion rate stayed the same, but our ARPU doubled. It's like, great. Like, let's do it again or let's do something else. And so I think it's, it's, really thinking about what you have to lose and just, you know, getting over the confidence of, of starting small and being like, all right, I'm just going to do it for a month. Um, I'm going to just look at the data after the month and I'm going to start with something small. I'm going to start with just like raising the price, you know, by, by 50%, right. Which feels really high 50%. But if you're raising it from 50 to $75, it's, it's not crazy. Or if you're raising for 25 to, you know, $50, a hundred percent increases, that's not absolutely that big of an increase. And normally what you find is you get your confidence up because you're like, well, my conversion rate went down a little bit, but not that much. And we netted out our biggest month ever, right? And you're like, okay, well, let's try something else, right? And I think it's just starting small and getting those reps and, and just realizing that, you know, your insecurity is, is driving a lot of your decisions because you're doing something from nothing. And that's really, really hard. And, you know, your mind doesn't like to fail and your mind doesn't want to do things that is going to cause you to fail. And so getting over that psyche and basically getting into a world where you can get those little reps. And then as you become bigger and stuff like that, you can do bigger reps because you can afford to make bigger mistakes. And so I think that's kind of how I think about it. But like I said, I think Patrick McKenzie, Patio Levin has written a lot on this and it's been, it's been really good for a lot of folks to kind of, you know, get, get the confidence up. Let's talk about this 10 to 15% of founders who are just weirdos who think <laughs> customers are going to pay way more for what they're building than they're actually going to pay. There's kind of a parallel here where I talk to a lot of founders who think that people will use what they're going to build when the reality and the evidence is suggesting that people won't, aren't going to use it because it's not valuable. Yeah. I wonder if there's sort of a parallel, if it's the same thing going on. In your experience, why do people believe that people are going to pay more for what they're building than is true? Um, so I think the people who, the 15% that I mentioned, I think they're very, they're just, it's probably their personalities, you know, right? It's like, they think that they, you know, are, are, you know, God's gift to whatever their space is. They think it's really, really good or something like that. And, you know, it's never like black and white in that direction, but I think that's what, what happens a lot. I think the folks who think that someone's going to use the product, um, and that, and, and you're just like, ah, probably not like those folks, it's, it's, it's suffering from a similar like delusion, but that delusion is more like sometimes driven by like a, a, like a hope, right? Like just put all this time into this thing. So of course they must like it. And what I find with a lot of like indie founders is that most, not all, but a lot of, uh, a lot of us are like developer mindset where we're like, you know, engineers first rather than, you know, someone like me who's more like data scientist, but you know, really more on the business side than anything. And so what ends up happening is our our idea is like let's just build stuff. Oh, we we got we got weird pushback that this person wasn't going to use this because you know they didn't have this feature. Well, let's just go build that feature, right? And so what ends up happening is they build this like Frankenstein monster, which isn't pretty, and it's one of those things where just like no one's going to use it, but they did put a lot of time into it, so they 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 have to have to have that optimism, they have to have that hope. So I think it's a little bit different than the um, you know than the pricing aspect, but it's definitely like in the same family, if you will. One of the coolest things about 
your business is that you're sitting on a ton of data. You are working with so many companies, helping them to reduce their churn, optimize their pricing. Uh, what are some of your favorite tactics? What are some of your favorite insights that you've seen from all the data and insights that you've gathered over the years that other founders might not know about? Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. It's a broad question. We've done a lot of we've done a lot of fun uh, studies, and and yeah, like I like I think you alluded to before. We we actually just launched um, a benchmarks product, so you can go into your profitable account and basically compare yourself uh, not only in a snapshot but also over time um, with similar companies. I think that was the biggest thing missing from a lot of benchmarks product is it was like, oh, here's like a data set of 300 in this report and all of those businesses are nothing like yours. We actually look at like, hey, these companies have similar ARPU, similar churn or in the same vertical or different vertical. You know, this is what they look like. This is what you look like kind of a thing. And so I think what was what was cool about that is it allows us to kind of automate some of this like understanding of, of you know, what's going on in the market, what works and what doesn't. But, you know, to kind of get back to like your actual question, I think the value metric point that I brought up before, like having a value metric, companies that are using value metric based pricing are growing at it's like double the rate as those companies who are using, you know, feature based pricing, meaning they're just pricing based on, hey, you get these features and it's like a flat rate. So essentially it's like unlimited usage or unlimited value that you get from it. And maybe you to get this other feature have to upgrade for 50 bucks a month. But you know, those those companies are doing as well. And it's rare you see a double phenomenon, right? Like that's really, really rare in data. I think some of the other things is um What's happening in the world of like subscriptions in particular is that these aspects of growth are starting to get more dramatic. And what I mean by that is, you know, we talked about these growth levers, acquisition, monetization, and retention. Over time, acquisition was basically the best thing you could ever do 15, 20 years ago because there wasn't as much competition. Um, the average number of competitors you had was like close to two or three. You know, when you launched your product, um, now the average number of competitors, you know, the first day you launch is closer to about 13 to 15. Um, just because, you know, software and products are easier and easier to build, like they're not easy to get right, but they're easy in terms of spinning up a server, spinning up a website, driving traffic, et cetera. And so when you have these low competition moments in history, what was really kind of fascinating is that you also had this other relationship where you're getting a brand new marketing channel almost every single quarter, and in some cases, every single month. So I don't know if anyone's old enough listening to the podcast to remember, and I wasn't old enough to remember this either, but there were worlds where you had 90% email open rates, you had penny per click Google ads, you had, you know, you were the first person on Facebook advertising, these types of things where you just had these massive opportunities where these channels would just explode. And I think what's happened, or it's not I think, the data indicates what's happened is that all of a sudden more and more companies, less and less marketing channels that are brand new. And so you don't have this like interesting arbitrage opportunity anymore. And so what was happening back in the day is you didn't have to have a great product because there just weren't a lot of great products out there because you were just kind of building the bread and water of SaaS. You were building the bread and water of, of products. And what ended up happening is like you had these major growth channels. So you had these products that we would look at now and be like, wow, that was a billion dollar company. That was a hundred million dollar company. That was a $10 million company. And they just weren't great. And they were able to grow really, really quickly because they're the only products actually solving that problem. And so to get to you know the point here, 
what's happened is the impact of acquisition has actually started to go down. And it, to say it's gone down is like a little bit disingenuous because really it's just gone down to not godlike levels because we haven't had a new marketing channel or a major marketing channel in the past like three, four years. Um, I think the last one that really was major was Snapchat and that's not really applicable to everyone. And even then, you know, you have a world where basically what's happened is, you know, you, you can't just get, you know, unfair arbitrage opportunities out of acquisition. And this is why we're reinventing all these channels. Um, account based marketing, it's, it's basically email reinvented to be good email, not just spamming people. Right. And so what's happened is acquisition isn't as powerful of a lever. So these other levers, um, monetization retention, they actually are giving about four to eight X the impact, assuming a similar, you know, a similar optimization. So, you know, if you improve your leads by about 1% right now on the acquisition side, and this is across a lot of different businesses, so it's going to be different for different verticals, you can expect about a 3% boost in your revenue. But if you improve your ARPU, your monetization by 1%, or you improve your retention by about 1%, you're going to see about 4 to 8x that. So right around 15% in the world of, you know, pricing. And then also, you know, basically, you know, close to 10% in the world of retention in, in terms of your, your bottom line revenue. And so long story short, that's, that's a huge trend that we're seeing. And, and that's, that's one of the central trends that we have been riding. And it's been really guiding us in terms of the products that we build because, there's there's more and more of a reckoning, you know, every single year because of the density that's happened in this market. But to be a little bit more tactical in some trends, because those are always useful for for some things. Some of the most underutilized aspects of growing a subscription business, in particular, making sure that you're optimizing for more and more people to buy annual, if not longer term, uh, deals. Annuals have about, I think, it's thirty percent better retention than monthly accounts um, just because it's one time a year you're getting people to basically you know sign up for that year versus 12 you know times per year um, another really underutilized aspect is add-ons so again you're building this product and you're building this customer base who presumably likes you because they're being retained like sell them an add-on sell them priority support sell them you know a new feature a new product that you know maybe shouldn't be baked directly into the product um, and maybe should be something separate but that's a really really big thing it's a really really underutilized piece um, and then a final piece I think is there are a number of different mechanical pieces of churn that I think you can kind of go after we talk a lot about delinquent and credit card failures um, they make up about 30 to 40 percent depending on your type of business of your overall churn meaning 10 people churn out, three to four of them was because of, you know, credit card failures. And you're only recovering really three out of 10 of those folks that, that churn because of credit card failures. And so that's a pretty good area of optimization from a mechanical perspective. And then the annuals I already mentioned for mechanics and then even like good engagement emails. That's another mechanical piece that's super, super important for, you know, basically taking care of, um, taking care of business in terms of your churn. So, there's at least one missive in there, I think, for everybody. And so, uh, sorry, sorry to ramble there. There's just some really cool stuff, and I get fired up about this because I love studying the market. I don't know if, if spewing out insights rapid fire can be called rambling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to put a quarter in me, man. I just go for days on this, and like, you know, it, it's just it's exciting. and it's also because I'm like I'm running our content team still, and so it's one of those things where I'm just like right in the thick of it, doing the analysis, getting the posts out, that type of stuff. And so, yeah, it's I mean, I'm not writing the posts anymore, thankfully, but definitely, you know, cranking on things. To close out, I want to reference a couple of facts that you also spoke about in your talk at MicroConf earlier this year. You said that uh, from your surveys and from your data, 
Remote companies have considerably less growth and retention. This one's going to get me in trouble with this crowd, I feel. Co-located companies, yeah. Uh, You also said that founders who have hobbies and who score high on work-life balance tended to report slower growth than founders who uh, had fewer hobbies and who had worse work-life balance. You know, a lot of these, these, let's just say, unpopular (laughs) unpopular (laughs) statistics that founders don't want to be true. As we sort of close out here, what's your recommendation for people listening in? What's some advice, some common things I might believe that you think that they should reconsider? Yeah, and so uh, I think just to be super... Super clarifying, so I don't get you know run out of town here. I think um, the funny thing is, is that we we build conceptions, and this goes back to truth. We build conceptions of what the truth is because we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to fail. We don't want to you know let people down. These types of things we rationalize, and and that's amazing, right? That's a good you know human evolutionary characteristic that keeps us alive, at least mentally, right? And I think that what's happened is. You know, we then feed off of each other and we feed off people who are, you know, very similar to us. So, you know, there's the remote work posse, there's the indie hacker posse. And what's funny is like we all start to get these beliefs that we, we can sometimes take to an extreme, right? You know, remote work is the greatest innovation to work, you know, in the past 10 years, right? Like I've, I've read that. I've read similar things to that. I've read, you know, part of that verbatim actually. And so it's like one of those things where, Whenever I see something like that, I want to get some data on it because I'm like, well, hold on a second. It can't be like that black and white, right? Like it can't be that black and white as to, you know, this is great because there's definitely downsides to everything, right? There's downsides to every direction. And so that's when I start to research things. And with the remote work aspect, it was, oh, interesting. Like everyone kind of goes remote eventually as you grow. But, you know, to say that you're not making trade-offs by being remote and it's just great because, you know, you can hire people from anywhere and all the obviously positive pa- aspects of it, you know, is, is, is just wrong because there's more nuance there. And so I think that's why I wanted to get that research. And, and for those of you who haven't seen that research, basically, you know, what it indicates is that before $10 million in ARR and annual revenue, it's slower growth for remote companies. Um, now, there's positives to having that slower growth, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a trade-off. And on the hobby side, there's like definitely um, a trade-off to having a hobby that takes up a considerable amount of your time. Like I think it was like 10 hours or more per week that you are doing and trying to build a big company. So you're going to have slower growth. And so I think it's really, really important. And the advice I would have is know thyself as, as much as you you possibly can. Because, and, and if you feel like you don't, and you feel like if you're, you know, having dissonance with yourself or with others, like maybe look internally a little bit and try to know thyself. And I, as I say that, I realize like, I just sound so soft from where I once was, <laughs> but it's like, it's so true because like once you start to realize who you are and, and be unabashedly unapologetic about, you know, what's important to you, then you can be like, yeah, I, I know it's going to grow slower, but my mental health, my happiness, my relationships, all these things are probably going to be much better. Therefore, I'm okay growing slower. Um, or I'm not trying to build a $100 million company. I'm trying to build you know, a $1 million company and I'm fine if we're all remote. And if we become a $10 million company or more, that's totally fine too. And so I think that's the really, really big thing is is the biggest piece of advice is, is know thyself. And then don't look at things, and, and this is the larger point of, I think, when I brought that data up, don't look at things in like this, oh, I'm being attacked if something disagrees with my conception of the world. Look at it more as maybe there's something I don't understand, or maybe my view is 
is too aggressive. And, and you can still keep your view after that exercise. Like that's totally fine. But if you don't understand the trade-offs and you don't understand the other side of the argument, you can't truly believe your argument because you haven't assessed why you should believe what you believe. And I mean, that goes for, honestly, that goes for politics. It goes for building a company. It goes for workplace balance. It goes for interpersonal relationships and those types of things. But there's trade-offs in everything you do. And, and I think that's, that's a really, really big thing you have to grapple as a founder because once you figure that out, it becomes a lot easier because then you can be honest with yourself and be like, all right, well, we're going to come out with this free product. Well, why don't we sell it? Well, we could make money on it, but you know, we're, we're trying to go for this vision. And if we're going to go for this vision, we're willing to give up that money or, Hey, like, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dedicate my life to this and I'm going to love going to work every day. And I don't want to apologize for working a ton of hours. Yes, I'm going to need some good people around me who are going to tell me if I'm getting a little too stressed or, hey, maybe you need to go on a break and I need to figure out what those triggers are for me when I know I need to go on a break. But why should I apologize for for wanting to work those 60 hours in a week? Or why should I apologize for wanting to only work 20 and dealing with the trade-offs of, you know, maybe I'm not going to be, you know, a billionaire? This is such a good point because almost everything has a trade-off. And if you're not honest with yourself about the trade-offs that you're making, then you're going to be making those trade-offs without your knowledge, and that's not better. <laughs> it's definitely way worse. So I appreciate you bringing that point up. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure having you on. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at ProfitWell? Yeah, absolutely, man. And thanks for having me. I, I Like I said, I, I I love like I'm more of a lurker in the indie hackers community. I sometimes participate, but I just love love this world and um, I love what you guys have done and, and just you know the the rest of the indie hackers you know resources and stuff like that because it's like you know we're all in this together. We're all trying to you know do stuff. Sometimes we compete with one another, but at the end of the day, we're you know we're trying to get those good outcomes for ourselves. And so you know, thanks for everything you do in terms of you know where where you can find me. Uh, my email address is just Patrick at profitwell.com. I'm more than willing to help, you know, basically anyone. Things get crazy, schedules get hectic, but I, I get back to people eventually and, and I try to pride myself on that. It might take me a few months, but um, it's one of those things I can help. Um, in terms of online, you know, profitworld.com, um, we finally have like a website that I'm not super proud of, but I'm proud-ish of. So I think that, you know, it kind of, you know, explains everything that we do. And I publish a ton of content. Um, we publish a ton of content. And so um, one good place to see it for me personally is just Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. We do a lot or just follow us on Twitter at ProfitWell or, you know, sign up for a newsletter or something like that. So yeah, it's, it should be pretty easy to find us. But um, if you have any trouble, just email me at Patrick at ProfitWell.com. All right, Patrick. Thanks so much. Awesome, man. We'll have a good rest of the week. And uh, yeah, it was good chatting. Listeners, it would really help out the show if you took a minute to reach out to Patrick on Twitter and let him know that you enjoyed hearing from him. He is at Paticus on Twitter. That's P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. I would really appreciate it if you reached out and showed him some love. I also appreciate hearing from you myself on Twitter. I'm at C.S. Allen, C-S-A-L-L-E-N. If you learned something useful from the show, let me know. Or if you have any suggestions at all for guests that I should bring on, topics I could cover, or ways that I can improve the show, I'm all ears. It's pretty hard to get feedback on a podcast, so I love it when you reach out and send me messages on Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.